This episode is brought to you by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. The right financial intelligence platform can make or break your quarter. AlphaSense is the number one rated financial research solution by G2. With AI search technology and a library of premium content, you can stay ahead of key macroeconomic trends and accelerate your investment research efforts. AI capabilities like smart synonyms and sentiment analysis provide even deeper industry and company analysis. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. All right. Hello and welcome to yet another value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review wherever you're watching or listening to it. Uh, with me today, I'm happy to have him on for his first monthly check-in of 2024, my friend Chris and the founder of Ring Capital. Chris the Muth. Chris, how's it going? Well, uh, going okay. Uh, would like uh, better and different news uh, in the antitrust world, uh, for sure. Um, have some thoughts on that. Uh, I'm busy on a number of litigation opportunities and uh, uh, feeling great about this year. Like the more the 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 more uh, you can extend the timeline. The more I'm cheerful about what we're doing over the next five years with very high level of confidence over the next year with pretty good level of confidence and day to day fairly morose. I hear that. Well, before we start talking all that, I'll just do the the same thing I always do. Quick disclaimer to remind everyone, nothing on this podcast investing advice. It's always true, but particularly true today because who knows what Chris and I are going to talk about. We'll probably talk about a lot of things. So uh, keep that in mind. I guess, Chris, we're talking... Monday, January 29th, you said two things that I think we kind of wanted to talk about here. I guess we could start with either antitrust or litigation. I think either of those topics are interesting. What kind of strikes your fancy to start with? Um, Let's do antitrust to start with, uh, in part because it's so bad and kind of comprehensively bad that it makes me prospectively excited on other things that we're working on because uh, it's bad in a way that uh, is directly bad on a spirit, obviously, and other antitrust-sensitive m and obviously, but it's even just bad for capitalism and transparency because it's so arbitrary. I mean, I think that the um, decision in spirit uh, is uh, kind of the poster child for mandatory retirement ages. It's self-contradictory, uh, written in a garbled form that reminds me of the Supreme Court Chief Justice when he just starts with a conclusion that he wants to get right with the New York Times headline the next day, and he'll just kind of mush together whatever he needs to to get it. Um, it kind of just mushed together uh, parts that... Uh, that were self-contradictory in terms of which expert he relied on, which market definition he relied on. But uh, it was a Republican in a, a blue state on a blue court. And uh, if he'd wanted to not get overturned or criticized, uh, this would be the kind of social decision to make. But it was uh, too bad for spirit. Um, it was too bad for antitrust. And it makes it harder, much harder to think about analyzing contracts and markets in a future where he did the thing that I thought was at risk in this decision, which was uh, remove 
the substantial kind of materiality standard from Clayton, um, it's going to take a while with over years for many good quality, well-written, lucid, uh, uh, sober decisions to undo that harm. I mean, I don't think this will be a permanent part of jurisprudence. I think it'll be unwound over time, uh, but it was a terrible decision um, and uh, uh, on all fronts. And I've been kind of going back over his comments from the bench to understand how predictable it should have been based on kind of the bits and pieces of his verbiage. Um, but it was kind of the tritest and uh, most superficial reading of how he sounded um, that it could have been. So disappointed on all fronts. Um, and and uh, it was the bigger and more famous uh, a, a decision. But uh, Judge Ramos in Southern District of New York had a, a, a kind of similar decision that was, was actually cited uh, in this docs in this one, but I think was similar in the Propel Media decision, uh, both of which, the combination of which really kind of harkens back to Philadelphia National Bank, which is just this kind of pseudoscientific kind of pre-economics enumerate way of thinking about markets um, that it's great for bureaucrats, it's great for the administrative state because they can just say, ha ha, you have X market share. Even in markets that are just changing just constantly. I mean, it's like saying, uh, it's like having a law based on what the wind is allowed to be at, at Mount Washington, right? It's 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 just, uh, uh, the world is a wild world. It, markets are dynamic, changing constantly. And some kind of weenie bureaucrat lawyer in DC says, ha ha, you have this at this moment. Uh, I'm bringing that to court. It's like, okay, you can say that. I mean, th th those, are, those are all words, um, but uh, it just has almost nothing to do with how markets work. And uh, the, the combination of the propelled media block and the spirit block uh, to protect something, it's not even a prediction, to protect something that does not exist today. And this um, whole kind of weird comment that the judge made about, you know, well, some people love spirit. Okay, fine. Uh, there's not a profitable business model today that exists. Um, so we could have something that goes away um, almost immediately that doesn't even exist today that he was nominally protecting with at least rhetorically protecting. Um, I've gone back and I and I don't have a great conclusion. I, I want to learn all the right lessons, but I don't want to overlearn the lessons just because it's the most immediate uh, precedent uh, and vivid. Uh, but interested to go back and trying to better understand what he was saying and how that fit into his decision. And then also trying to go back and really question why, if this was how things were headed, that the companies didn't make a staunch, clear, failing firm defense. Like if you look at um, uh, JetBlue and Spirit decisions coming out of this uh, case, you could have made a stronger case that this wasn't protecting uh, market shares because the, the uh, contrafactual was completely different than how the judge uh, set it up. I mean, there was the, a fantasy ideal world, uh, the world of this deal and a world without this deal, but the companies didn't make a very clear case that the world without this deal is no more competitive than the world with it. And I think yeah. that they could have made that very clearly, especially with what we're seeing after the deal broke. I guess 
on just a, a few different points. So on the feeling firm, you know, I, I think the companies, look, I thought the trial, obviously did tons of podcasts, talked to tons of people there, like read all the stuff. I thought the trials was going really good for the company. And you know, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, they could have harped on it. But like, I don't think the, the case law for making a failing firm defense case is really great, right? Because- No, it's, it's a very last line of defense. It's, it sort of presupposes failure on almost all other fronts. So I can imagine tactically lawyers are pretty uncomfortable with it. Yeah. So like, I, I mean, I thought it was going great for him. So I don't even know why you'd broach it. And now in hindsight, like the judge asked so many questions on, hey, you know, asked about Spirit's viability and everything. Like, I guess in hindsight, you could have like put yourself in the judge's shoes and been like, maybe he's asking these because he wants exactly what's happening now where, you know, this deal blocks in the next day, Wall Street Journal's reporting Spirit's exploring restructuring options and like Spirit not might not be an airline anymore. You know, that's exactly what he didn't want. So maybe put yourself... I don't know. I, I guess the other thing, the other two things I've really been thinking about are number one, you know, throughout the case, I kept hearing from everyone who was in the courtroom, hey, how much respect they had for this judge. And like in my, when I was thinking through the case, I was really thinking like everyone talks about how much respect they have for the judge. You know, he's an 80 year old judge, but uh, I talked to people who litigated with in front of him five years ago, 10 years ago, uh, you know, how much respect they had for the judge and everything. And then I read the decision and the two things that jump out to me, are, the thing that really jumps out to me is the inconsistency of with one of the expert witnesses the government presented, which I always thought was going to be a huge issue. You know, the expert witness, JetBlue d tore him apart. They showed his model was terrible. It was unreliable, bad data. The model was like basically a parabola and you just cut off the ends to show it as a straight line. I, I thought it was terrible. And the judge said, hey, this was a credible witness, despite the despite the de the defendants raising very credible objections. And I was kind of like, credible objections? The objections were, it would be like, if you're like, hey, Chris is a great guy, despite the objections Andrew raises to his characters. Like, yeah, the objections are raised to characters. He committed genocide. Like the man's committing genocide. That's a pretty big objection. You can't, you're, generally you don't have great genociders. But so the, the, I don't know. I was just trying to weigh that against when I see the decision Hey, I thought the judge was really good before. Like, how much do I read into that? You know, that's one. And then there's one other thing I want to run by you. Well, let me just respond that the quality standard, I mean, it has to be a huge, I mean, I, I think that this decision was so interesting coming out at what could be, you know, I think we're on the one yard line for ending uh, Chevron deference. And so this big possible change in how courts look at the administrative state and how much we're supposed to defer to the administrative state. I think it's going to have a sea change, especially if the Democrats lose the White House. Uh, the combination could have a sea change in regulatory affairs. Uh, but uh, this was a big opportunity for this judge to set real serious standards on materiality, what sub substantive means in the law, and on uh, pushing back hard on uh, the quality of experts. He And he did the opposite. So he did all those things, but he said, government can just say things uh, that it doesn't matter as long as you can, as long as you're a, 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 a literate lawyer in DC, you can just put words together and uh, it, there's no uh, requirement for, uh, for substance. And you just need a kind of sane, sober uh, uh, expert and they can murder uh, charts and logic, and that's fine too. So he uh, he did set the standards, but he just set the standards at nothing. Uh, so it's it's really a, a terrible thing for the law. We I saw I know you saw a few of them too. Like law firms would send around reviews of the case and the decision, you know, because law firms they care about this because they're going to have to set it as precedent. They they need to know like what the law what. And most of them I saw was like, hey, 
this decision was, and this is what the Bears were saying the whole time, right? This is a by the books antitrust. You yeah. have a, mer a horizontal merger, you have hot docs, you have deference to the government, and you have prices going up, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's arguing those. What Spirit and JetBlue are arguing is they're saying, hey, really understand the industry, understand the history here. Like, here's everything. This is a great merger all around for everyone. And ignoring that, like, it's not your job to rule if it's a great merger or not. It's your job to rule if it's an antitrust problem. And if you look at all of these different things, you can see why this is an antitrust problem. So anyway, what the law, the law firms were saying was, this is a paint by the books antitrust decision. And I think a lot of them were saying what you and I thought were betting on. It's a paint by the book and one that required an antitrust decision that like actually understood the industry and showed a little, I don't want to, creativity might not be the word because I don't think you have to be that creative to read the JetBlue thing and say, oh, this is great. The other thing it said that was interesting, and we saw this from multiple law firms was, hey, okay, yes, the government won here, but this is another example of the government coming up with a, a uh, an antitrust case and similar to Spectrum Brands and maybe a few others, and the government just getting absolutely slaughtered in court when they went to argue the case, which might speak to a weak case or might speak to an ineffective. But I thought that was a really interesting comment. And I saw that from, I don't know, probably three different law firms. And obviously, I thought the government was getting slaughtered in the case as we listened to it. I, I don't know if you want to comment on anything there. Uh, yeah, no, I, I got updates from all the firms, calls from all the partners. I mean, I hope these people are all trillionaires by now, by the uh, by their addition of how confident they were at the time. But uh they, um, their view would minimize my worry about this as a precedent. And maybe I seek too much kind of coherence, both within an argument and within a system overall. So I kind of see a given data point and think, okay, well, now this is how the future has to be to take into account. And, and the reality sometimes is it's just a messy world and they do uh they make decisions all the time that don't fit in with other decisions so you know i think i think that the i mean right after the propel media decision i think that this one was um creates in a sense it creates more space for future judges to set workable standards um because this this one really gives uh the government such huge latitude and i think where they'll use it is uh, for kind of social activism and rhetoric where they are able to pick the kind of underdog narrative and we'll have laws that are just kind of narrative driven and say, you know, this is uh, Shirley. Shirley wants to do that. Is like, we live in a country of over 300 million people. You can find a narrative that says anything. So if we're going to run public policy based on anecdotes, it's just endlessly absurd. Uh, but uh, the way the absurdity will be used is just in underdog narratives and beating up companies that uh, fit the villain narrative in a kind of 1980s Disney style. Uh, Mr. Biggs trying to buy the kids, uh, you know, favorite resort or something like that and build a condo and the, and the DOJ F FTC will be able to uh, be kind of the heroes uh, in their own minds. And now a quick break to remind you that this episode is brought to you exclusively by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. That, that actually leads into the last point I wanted to. So we're talking January 29th, and just this morning, Amazon and iRobot 
dropped their deal to merge mm-hmm. uh, because of opposition from the EU. And I had spoke to several experts on that. And basically, like I spoke to two antitrust lawyers, the same antitrust lawyer on the JetBlue deal mm-hmm. and the iRobot deal. And both of them, they had government backgrounds and they were like, look, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought they they basically were 70 percent in favor of the government's case. If this mm-hmm. if it was a 70, 30, they were 70 percent. And I thought they were a little too deferential to the government because, you know, they used to work there. They knew a lot of people there. But that, that was their case. They're like this. We've got the hot dogs, deference, all that. And both of them were like, hey, if you bring the iRobot case in U.S. court, Amazon's going to slaughter mm-hmm. the the government. Right. This is a horizontal deal. You're you've got Amazon, an online retailer. Buying it. There's absolutely no antitrust case. All of them, and I think Amazon dropped because of the EU concerns. And we can talk about like how they strategically, but like what's most interesting to me from the JetBlue deal and the iRobot deal is, you know, you now have two different deals where I think consumers are in a market wouldn't at minimum would not have been harmed or wouldn't have changed with these. And actually, like iRobot and Spirit are both breaking into decent amounts of distress. And I just wonder, like with these, you know, if the government could choose, hey, ULCCs off limits for mergers. Uh, iRobot can't sell to a strategic marketplace. Like, hey, I think they, Amazon might have said in their thing, like, this is awful for entrepreneurship. People have to start saying, hey, I might not want to start. If I see an opportunity to start a low cost carrier or something, maybe I don't do it because there's no exit on the back end. The government's just going to say, hey, too strategic. You're saving people too much money. Even if there's not a business plan here, you can't exit. The only exit is to file and liquidate. So, you know, I, I worry about those longer term things. I worry like, Again, Amazon iRobot, I thought that was right down the middle in terms of, yes, it's a giant company, but being big and buying someone is not an antitrust issue. Being big in a market and buying another competitor and causing uh, consumer harm is an antitrust issue. So I, I don't know. I, I just worry about that. And I guess people, my libertarian bent is really showing here, but I, I wanted to toss that over to you. Well, what does it mean to own something? I mean, you can't show up at iRobot and rearrange the furniture, but you do get no, that protein. Roomba sometimes rearranges my furniture. So I, I don't you, know. You, um, uh, uh, I, I do. Uh, I ch- when when we had babies at home, I did chase them around with the iRobot, which I thought was pretty fun when you could kind of control. Uh, but um, uh, you get a return of capital at some point or another. Uh, you get a return of capital, and one of the major ways of doing that is in M&A. So even if on most days you're not benefiting from a deal, the possibility that you do eventually is the exit. It's why you capitalize companies. And the idea that Lena Khan uh, and the, the, at the FTC and the Department of Justice just are the are they're in charge now. Uh, they pick which models uh, are uh, sacred and which ones are not. Um, is 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 hugely damaging just to the very idea of private property rights. Um, if you don't break the law, it shouldn't be none of their business. I, I don't have the least bit of curiosity other than having to get through uh, these processes. What they think I should own and who they think I should sell it to, uh, they wouldn't make the top million people I would uh, have the least bit of curiosity to inquire about their views on. Uh, they just have these kind of glandular uh, views, uh, that are, um, you know, uh, kind of narrative based, uh, and, uh, and will have this huge impact on society. I mean, even in the course of the uh, deal, you know, there's been new entrants into this, um, area, uh, anchor has started new products. Uh, they, the idea that either Spirit or uh, iRobot uh, is going to dominate or be a monopolist of anything is laughable. Uh, they're going to they would go bankrupt before they would have pricing power and anything. 
I don't think maybe I'd make too much of it. It's getting real wonky here, but like the Amgen, the Amgen Horizon deal last year that the mm-hmm. FTC sought to b- block, and they, they had all these theories, and Amgen was like, okay, we'll agree to them, but like we weren't going to do them, and there's not really a legal standard there, and everything. You know, though it, it just reminds me like that was big company, big pharma company buying small rare drug disease company, right? And if you're going to say big is bad, like those were obvious attempts to block. And I think they kind of got laughed out of the courtroom. So they eventually settled. But it it like it does bother me because one of the reasons you fought, found a small like company to take the shot, you know, it's one in a hundred to find a cure to a rare disease. There's very small patient pools. Like it doesn't make sense for these companies to hit scale and then like build out their own sales force and try to monetize these drugs. Like the exit actually has to be selling to a larger company. And if you're going to come block them because big is bad, like what you're actually doing is shutting off research and development because if people know they can't exit, these businesses can't run properly on their own. Horizon was a little bit different because they were big enough, they'd done enough M&A. But you know, if you and I w- wanted to go, look, we couldn't go fund a rare drug company if you can't sell at the back end because if you're going to be one drug company, it makes absolutely no sense to go hire a sales force and all this sort of stuff. So I don't know. Yeah, I just look at it and I, I see it, it so negatively and it, 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 it upsets me a little bit. But I don't know if I'm, you know, maybe I'm just sour grapes because of spirit or maybe it's my libertarian bent but you know i i was completely against t-mobile sprint like i thought that was an obvious four to three and maybe that's been proven wrong but i think part of the reason it's been proven wrong is because the cable guys came into wireless really aggressively like there have been a few other ones that have gone through but all of these ones i see and they're not even edge cases like all of them to me should just be sailing through i think it's a disaster that they're not agree uh, unrelated we haven't really talked about u.s steel nipon too much uh, that's a really popular one just because, uh, look, it's Nippon's a Japanese company. They're buying U.S. steel. And there's all this talk about CFIUS review. And it, it seems pretty clear to me that the unions aren't happy that Nippon's buying U.S. steel. It seems like they wanted uh, CLF to buy U- United Steel. And uh, it does. It seems like this is going to get a CFIUS review because of jobs, which is really interesting to me. I mean, Japan, last I checked, has been an ally of ours for going on 80 years the the five years prior to that might not have been great but this is a really close ally of us and if you're going to block this on national security concerns because of jobs and it seems because of the union and somebody pointed out something interesting the united auto workers endorsed biden last week and the steel workers have not and they think it might be related to this deal i don't know i I just think that's an interesting one i'd be curious for two seconds of your thoughts on that well with legislative parity i'm kind of taking the under on almost any issue that requires congressional action, but on foreign policy, and CFIUS is a very kind of foreign policy kind of oriented uh, 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 statute, uh, the president has uh, a ton of authority. We, we have a strong presidency when it comes to foreign policy. And uh, so Biden can do whatever he wants, uh, unlikely that he would want to clear this uh, before the election, I would think. I think there's very little political upside. Uh, it hurts the case that it's called U.S. Steel, right? That it was just the the um, the stupidest uh, things one could say are uh, are easy to say. Um, uh, you know, you could have a, a, a kind of mildly racist, xenophobic case that kind of uh, 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 is easy to paint. Uh, So the dumb arguments, uh, like you can be sure in this political environment, somebody's going to kind of take the low road to any possible situation. This is an easy low road to imagine. I can Uh, see both sides campaigning on, I'm going to block US deal. And like, it almost becomes a, who's going to block the US deal merger harder? I can see that uh, coming into play. There aren't enough merger arbs to be this major part of the electoral college 
uh, consideration. You know, I would like hedge fund managers to uh, be given a place uh, in this kind of populist uh, era, uh, but uh, we don't really have one. Uh, and uh, maybe even hurting us helps. Um, but uh, uh, so I can't think of any kind of political reason to be for it. Uh, eventually, uh, Japan is, I mean, the, the serious issues here, I should say, are nonsense, right? The antitrust issues are nonsense. The foreign, the, uh, it's, the, the steel, it's like if you business. block it, I, I could maybe understand why, like when China, when a Chinese company wanted to buy pork processing facilities, I could understand why that might be an issue because you could poison the pork or, or that sort of stuff. But here it's like U.S. steel getting bought by an ally and it's not like the steel plants go anywhere, right? Like, what's Japan going to do? Secretly weaken the steel that the plant's producing? Like, hey, you also, catch that pretty quick. But the, the steel, if if something turned, like, the plants are still there. You just seize the plant. Seize the means of production. Sure. Also, also, um, an ally fairly well-renowned. Again, this isn't a good, I don't have to get votes, but fairly well-renowned for better more exacting, more exacting production standards than we have, right? So they're good at doing things like this. So it almost certainly, uh, the, the reality is that it improves our national security issues because U.S. Steel will be better with the Japanese running it. Um, they're also incredibly key allies for kind of the next half decade uh, if we're at war over Taiwan in some fashion in the next few years, we kind of need Japan. Uh, they're uh, incredibly important. Uh, you know, Japan, it's interesting because they still have uh, kind of constitutional limitations coming out of World War II, but uh, they have a very proficient uh, self-defense force that could be scaled up really quickly. And I think it's in America's interest to kind of liberate them from all these constraints as fastly uh, as fast and uh, and co comprehensively as possible. Um, so they're not just an ally, but an increasingly important ally uh, where uh, in a kind of more multipolar world, their geography is even more important. Um, so, you know, we get through the election and I think things could pivot quite a bit. Um, but all of the all the dumb things you could say and all the kind of first level thinking in this are used against it. So it was something I liked a lot as a pre-arb. It's something I've not liked a lot as an arb, but would uh, happily uh, reassess later lower. Uh, a few people asked me on Twitter, you were by yourself with three kids this weekend. A few oh, other people asked me, do you still have three children? Are there still, you know, kind of. 30 and fingers and toes and everything in the household. I do. I might have committed a felony. I'm not sure about this, but I kind of was reading and totally thinking about something else and I needed something. So I just reached over my shoulder and said, handed a credit card and said, hey, will you go in town and get me something I needed? And he said, sure, and left. But I have three kids and it was the youngest one. I, I, I was going to say that it was Christopher, the oldest, not the youngest, no, right? It was, it was Bashi. It was, it was the 10 year old. So 15 year old, totally fine. 10 year old. I'm not exactly, I haven't looked, somebody could, somebody could uh, check this for me, uh, but he went into town on his own with a, with money. He uh, spent it. He got what I needed, came back. And uh, uh, so it was totally successful. So yeah. So no, they were alive and well. And uh, my wife actually made money on her a ski trip to Utah. She got $2,700 in bumps. Uh, and apparently it's the best bump out of New York. Uh, first flight out Thursday morning. So for a three-day weekend skiing in Park City, $2,700 of bumps. Uh, so um, so that was uh, a good trip. How much was she delayed for the bump? Um, I think it was quite a few hours. I think it was, I think it cost her like half a day, something like that. 
it's still not. I mean, twenty seven hundred for half a day. I, I'm always bumps always make me laugh because like one time I was going on like a nine hour flight or something. You know, like, it, it, I guess six hours. I think it was to California. So. And the next flight was the next morning. And they're like, hey, we'll give $100, $150 bump. It's like, who's going to be like, go home. By the time you go home from the airport, right? sleep, come back. Like you're out money, ignoring the time, the hassle, everything. And then sometimes I'll have like, you know, New Orleans to the, uh, New York to New Orleans. They'll be like, hey, there's another flight 45 minutes from now. We're going to upgrade you to first class. Whoever takes this, we're going to get $500. You've just got to wait 45 minutes mm. to take off or something. Like, Who is coming up with these numbers? What are yeah. these systems? This is why Spirit can't make any money. Like, come on, guys. Uh, let's see. I guess what anything else. You know, Always really interesting. Like, banks have been on my mind a lot recently. Mm-hmm. There have been some of those credit union deals. I've been really interested okay. in those just because like, they come at big premiums. And I wonder if the credit unions are capitalizing or looking seeing value that maybe public market investors aren't in terms of for the credit unions themselves getting bigger getting access to the demutualized company i, I don't know that those have been really interesting to me yeah I no, I, I i think um i have a cynical view which is they don't have a publicly traded stock so that they don't have to justify near-term accretion or dilution or the value of impact the managers tend to have huge change of control provisions but need to get big enough to be relevant as deal targets themselves and when they're buying especially when they're buying mhc structured mutual hold codes, you don't really have to pay anything for the majority of the equity, as long as you can convince the managers, you're really only paying a premium to the minority. So it's a little bit like the dynamics of settling a appraisal case where you only have maybe five or 10%. You can get these big premiums because it just doesn't add up that much. So um, so I think the MHCs, where if you don't have growth prospects and the market hasn't really given you a big premium, the market's telling you it doesn't love you in your current form. You can't really use that currency as a buyer in deals, you're then left to do a kind of so-so second step or remutualize to a credit union willing to pay a big premium. So um, they have the money, they can do what they want. What they normally want is to get bigger. And uh, we've been seeing one almost every day. And some of these are, you know, 100% premium deals. So I think they're, I think they're going to, you know, we'll have, we'll have dozens of them this year uh big premiums and uh it's it's really interesting to see i guess last thing just because we haven't had lionel in a while but i got a few questions on just you know liquidia for those who mm-hmm. haven't followed like lionel did some great pods especially right after the right after the court case but liquidia won last year and then there's lots of questions on uh, there was a padufa date with the fda last year they they did a lot of people are just curious for what current thinking on liquidia is uh, I love Liquidia. Um, I'm not that worried about the FDA. Uh, famous last words. Um, I think the FDA is being a little bit pedantic about wanting more closure on the uh, court issues, which we'll, we'll know a ton more in February. So my sense is that they won't need to set a new date. My sense is that the current application is approvable and will be approved and is complete. Uh, and that, uh, so they did not get a CRL. Like it was, it was initially within moments of it. Um, it was unclear. They would have, uh, they would have, uh, AK to CRL. They did not get that. Didn't get a new Padufa date, unlikely to do so. 
nothing was said to be inaccurate or incomplete with the application. Uh, so it's consistent with that being approvable. Um, and uh, I think it's still consistent with being in the market with full label, um, both indications in the second quarter, probably April. And so I think, you know, say we get a um, kind of court sign off in February, and that's the issue of um, uh, the, the uh, kind of complete kind of uh, uh, closure on on the on the patent front, then the FDA could come back and approve. If a few days later they still don't, then it's like, okay, maybe I'm missing something here. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think the company doesn't need to raise more equity if they can get to market in April and they think they're going to be profitable within a few quarters of that. Um, and so I don't think this looks like the kind of dreaded 30-month uh, stay possibility, which would then require raising more capital and would really change the situation quite a lot. So- I guess the other thing I just always thought, and I almost felt like I was being dumb for asking, but the the Purifa for last week was on the ILD label exception, mm -hmm. right? So like the worst case scenario to me would be if the FDA was really coming at this, coming just like, all right, we're going to drop the ILD application and just go back to the original label just for, get, and I, I think you could get approved under that and like launch on the normal timeline. It, it seemed like that was the worst case scenario to me, but I, I don't know if I was being crazy or not. No, no, that's that's reasonable. And I'll note um, that the companies have no plan on, for better or for worse, they do not appear to have any tactical plan as a kind of backup plan B that they're working on at all to split the label or anything. So either they're naive in taking on a risk that's going to fail horribly, or they are right to feel confident that they are going to have this label uh, ready to go soon. So they rightly or wrongly seem to be very confident that that backup plan is unnecessary. But no, logically, that clearly would be um, a way to go if necessary. Well, you know, I, I always like not having uh, heartache or stress or anything. So I, I prefer just, hey, FDA approved, done. Yeah. Don't even have to worry about it. But, you know, they, there are worse things in the world. And we probably won't know next month, but I guess at the end of March when we're doing it, we'll almost certainly know because I think they're planning on an April launch and you're going to have to know by the end of end of March if you're approved with, uh, before you can do an April launch. But yep. we will we will know soon. Cool. All right. Well, hey, let's wrap it up there, Chris. Sure. End of January. Looking forward. We've got a short month. We'll be talking soon because it's a uh, short February month. But Oh, that's right. Go ahead. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll I think, I think, I think, I think, we will hear back on liquidity from the FDA. Uh, I think we'll hear from the FDA by the next time we're talking. Right. I, you are probably right. I'm probably being a little too conservative, but it might be in March or something. Cool. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Chris, have a good one. Thanks, bud. Bye. A quick disclaimer. Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.